Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Time is flying. Isn't it incredible? This is ready again, episode 8 of season 8 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. And what makes me even more saying that time is flying is, well, this week, as you have probably already read, it's the fifth anniversary of your favorite podcast, of the Thoth Hermes podcast. And I am very happy about that. My name is Rudolf. I am the creator and the host. And I remember back then in 2017, I was nervously starting the first episode with my guest, Alan Richardson, a great guy. You should go back and listen to those old episodes. I might have improved a little bit since then, but there are so many interesting guests uh, uh, back then also. So I'm really grateful to each and everyone who accepted to come on this show, especially also in the early stages where we didn't know if I was even able to run a podcast. So thank you, everyone, for having been with us over the years. And um, as you probably have heard or read this week, this five, fifth anniversary week is a very special week because not only we will bring you the two regular episodes on the Sundays, on today, today's Sunday, the 17th of April, Easter Sunday, a very special Sunday. But also um, next Sunday, of course, there is episode nine. But in between, we have two more episodes to come, two special episodes, one on the anniversary day itself, on the 20th, and another one on the 22nd, on Friday. So lots of things to hear. You'd better take a week off, I think. <laughs> now, it's Easter week also, so maybe that helps a bit for having more time available to listen to. And, um, well, uh, I wish you all who celebrate Easter, happy Easter. Those who don't celebrate, I wish you a happy week. Anyway, with the Thought Service podcast, I have decided, because I have to say all of that about the fifth anniversary and all that, I'm not going to tell you anything about my website, thoughthermes.com today. I'm not going to say anything about becoming a patron. Thanks to those who are patrons and thanks to those who will become patrons without me inviting you to do so this week. But beware, next week I'll ask you again. So um, this is episode eight, as I said, and my guests... Two guests today um, are Sam Robinson and Ian Gladwin. Uh, you certainly know those names. Uh, Sam Robinson has been around for a while and their great website is pansofers.com. And that's why the episode is also titled The Pansofers. But that's not the name they give to themselves. I wanted to point that out. I chose it because it's the website that is called like that and... To me, they are 
the website. They are really doing a great job there. Right. So um, wonderful week coming along this week. So maybe I just remind you briefly on Wednesday the 20th, I have a trio episode, the special anniversary episode, where I have asked Carl Abrahamson, who you have heard as my guest twice before here, to be my co-host this time. So together with Carl, we have invited Lionel Snell to be our guest. And then on Friday, Friday, a very special thing as well, because I sure the first episode in this year, in uh, I think it was the 5th of January or something like that, um, we had Tamra Lucid as our guest. Tamra, who wrote that great, great little book on her experiences, on her seven years that she was very close to the work of Manly P. Hall working at his center up there and where she went there actually with a young man who she had met briefly before that and who then later became her husband. And that young man, Ronnie Pontiac, will be my guest on Friday's show for several reasons, mainly to talk about his own experience with Manly P. Hall uh, seen from his side, and he is kind of the second protagonist next to Manly P. Hall in that book. So Tamra has written lots about him in the book, and now we s we'll speak to the person himself. And of course, he has lots of things to say about his esoteric point of view himself. Right, and then next Sunday, it'll be Terje Simonson, my guest, and this will be the first time that we delve a little deeper than usual in the world of the paranormal, because Terje Simonson wrote that wonderful 500-pager, a short history of nearly all paranormal. And um, so, well, I gave you already the program of the week. You don't have to listen to the outro today. What a shame. Well, too bad. Um, so the intro became a bit longer and you had to listen to, but you didn't have to listen to my other usual stuff. So it's an anniversary week. It's all a bit different. It'll return to normal next week. Okay. But what will also be normal now is music. Of course, we're going to hear music on this show as well. Three pieces of music. And the first that I would like to uh, let you listen to is called Wahhabibi. Wahhabibi is, um, well, it's Arabic, of course. It's an Arabic word and it means my friend. And um, it is uh, a song that is usually sung in the Christian tradition in the Middle East on Good Friday. So as we are producing this show for Easter Sunday, I think it's a good, good fit. So, um, uh, my beloved, uh, uh, it's better than my, my friend, I think, Wahhabibi, my beloved, what state are you in? That's the song that we hear normally on Good Friday, the Christian tradition in the Arab countries, if there is a Christian tradition there. And um, so it's mostly, of course, in the Middle East, in, the, in those countries. And this song, which is inter interpreted by Shams 93, by that group, I will play for you now, and I hope you will enjoy. Mm -hmm. 
Habibi, my beloved, uh, wonderful, uh, wordless song in that case, because this was an instrumental version of that song that was played by this group Shams 93. And I hope you enjoyed. Okay, so we are going to meet Sam Robinson and Ian H. Gladwin now. And those two guys have done an extraordinary job in creating the website Pansophilus. Well, not only creating it, but maintaining it, blogging on it regularly. Really, it's the resource about the Rosicrucian tradition on the internet, I believe. And they, especially Sam, but more and more also Ian with time, and others who have joined him and them in their work um, have made an extraordinary collection. If you want to know anything about Rosicrucianism nowadays and in history, go there and you'll find really lots of very, very interesting and highly well-researched information. Also, Sam has published several books. I came across him for the first time when he published quite some years back a book on the Rosicrucian tradition in the Golden Dawn, within the Golden Dawn. And um, he has now just recently published a book about Alois Mylander, a very important figure in Rosicrucianism who has influenced and taught many people to follow. Um, and um, But he has been, well, kind of forgotten for several reasons that will be explained by Sam in the talk and also in his book, of course. So many good reasons to have those two guys on the show. So we had Ian sitting in New York and um, Sam sitting in the United Kingdom, me in Vienna. And so we had a three-edge um, conversation that was very, very, very nice. Go and have a look on the website on the scoring system for the different Rosicrucian orders that Sam created there. Samuel Robinson did an extraordinary job with that. And I must say, it's really very reliable as a resource also. Um, so it's, it's really something that you must go and read. <clears throat> I'm not going to make a, a long read myself today for you here. Um, this show is all a bit different. I think uh, it's necessary because I'm going to speak so much this week on all the other shows. You're going to hear me enough this week, so I make this intro a bit shorter than usual, and we will delve right away within the interview with Samuel Robinson and Ian H. Gladwin. And, of course, like always, I will come back in, well, it'll be 37 minutes and 40 seconds into the interview. I will come back to do a little musical break together with you. And now we go and we meet Samuel Robinson and Ian H. Gladwin, the Pansophers. And once again, it's me who invented that name for them because of their website's name. It's not them who gave themselves the name. I wanted to point that out. Uh, yes, one other thing. For those of you who make sense of the fact that that big interview on Rosicrucianism is being published on Easter Sunday, yes, you got it. Okay, thank you so much. And uh, now enjoy the interview. Here comes the interview. 
And today it's a special day because I have two guests here with me and it's not one of our trio episodes where I have a co-host with me. No, it's really two guests I have here and two very interesting guests that I'm very happy to welcome here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast, Sam Robinson and Ian Gladwin. And welcome to both of you here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And of course, those of you who are insiders uh, into the occult, and most of my listeners here are, when I name those two names, they know that we're speaking also today about the Pan Sulphur's website, because Sam, I believe, has created the site back then, and Ian is uh, very, very active on the site together with Sam. So you'll tell us more about it, how that all came together and happened. But um, Sam and Ian, um, let's maybe start with the two of you and your background, where it all started for you to uh, come into the world of the occult. Why did you get into it and when? And and. Uh, how did it happen? Sam, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, what brought you to to the world of the occult, of Rosicrucianism, etc.? For me, this goes back to um, the the area where I was born. I'm, I'm part New Zealand Maori, mm -hmm. and um, we have certain beliefs, and, and, and my grandfather was something like a kind of spiritual leader or holy man in our tribal setting. And... and um, those roots planted some seeds and, and they've been with me always. And, you know, they're deeply rooted in nature and the ancestors. And um, even when I come into the Western uh, occult trails, that, that that's with me. I, I, I look at the world through those eyes and through that lens. So um, there was a time when, when I was young, I was, I was uh, living in Australia at the time and uh, went to the outback. I was uh, out there with Aborigines in the outback for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, in a very small, remote, indigenous community. There was about, um, I think, maybe 40 white Australians and about a 1,000 Aborigines, um, and also camps so called outstations in, in the outback that the government sort of helps manage and run for the communities. And I was out there, and, and that's when I really started to delve into the Western path while I was out there. So I had, you know, things I was learning from them, and, and I was practicing uh, for a while um, the Western Hermetic Path. Um, um, actually, while living on an island, it was called Mornington Island. I spent a year out there. Mm -hmm. And, and um, that's basically what got me into it. I'd say cultural roots. It's interesting that your cultural roots brought you into the Western tradition. What, what, what caused that? Because you, you might suspect as an outsider that you then go more into uh, a tradition that that's more rooted in your personal background, right? Right, right. Okay, yeah. I, I felt very fulfilled and completed on the Maori side. By, by the time I came to Europe and Germany, I really felt like I'd uh, contributed to that path, preserved some of our teachings. You know, every family and tribe, they have their own heritage and, and own dialects, um, different gods that mm. belong to your own tribe as well. I felt very satisfied and, and was ready to... I guess, fulfill the other half of my life, which is my European side. Okay. You know? And uh, as you said, you now live in Germany and you, you, you work in Germany. So you, that's now your, your, your home, so to speak, in Germany. How long have you been in, in Europe now? Um, I've, I've just left Germany. So right now I'm, I'm down in Oberstdorf, but um, 
Mm -hmm. t technically, I'm, I'm over in England now, and and uh, I've been coming to Germany off and on since um, 2008. All right, right, yeah. okay, great. And and Ian, what about you? Um, you live now in New York, if I get it right. You are an artist, a visual artist. Um, how did it all start for you, and when? Yeah, so. For me, my interest, I, I kind of got into cult a little bit later in life. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people you know, tell the story, you know, when they were really young and they had a lot of impressions, you know, when they're just a young age. Um, it's interesting, similar to Sam, I, 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 I don't have the Miami background, but um, I grew up very close to nature and connected with nature. Um, I grew up in Alaska and that was, for me, you know, something that stayed with me, uh, you know, growing up throughout my life is just having a connection to things like rivers and forests and trees and um, and that sort of thing. Um, my mother is someone who I would say was a big influence on me. She is someone who I would say is kind of like a natural sort of a sensitive person. I mean, and what I mean by that is spiritually sensitive. She was always having premonitions and, you know, uh, speaking about things, you know, before they happened. And it was just kind of like a life for me that um, growing up in that environment, it was just something that seemed normal um, for me. So as I got older, I discovered things like art and music. Um, and, you know, that was kind of like a whole other world for me, um, where there's this kind of, you know, working with uh, this almost like invisible language. Um, and, you know, I studied art, I, I went to college, uh, I went to university where I ended up studying a lot of the classics of the, you know, the Western literary tradition, things like Homer, Plato, Dante as well. Um, and so sometime later uh, in my life, I kind of reached a point, I sort of experienced, I guess you could say, um, sort of personal crisis. And um, I was always working with art in a, in a certain way, you know, almost like uh, as one would sort of identify muses you know, like uh, in Greek mythology or something like that. It was always something that I knew that, you know, things were coming from the outside and I was working with them internally and presenting them outside um, as, as sort of my project. Um, but at this specific point in time, um, I don't know, I, it, I was just all of the work I was doing and, and everything I, I, I was working with as an artist I knew for me there was something more behind it, but I didn't really have, you know, any any mystical training or uh, a, a full knowledge of a cult to really grasp or understand what was going on there. So I just dove into it. Um, I don't remember what the first thing I discovered was. Maybe it was uh, Israel Regardi's, you know, book, and I studied that and I started practicing um, things out of that book and continued on with it. Um, eventually, I, I discovered Rosicrucianism. And uh, that, that was something that really uh, sort of changed, changed my life. Um, 
And today, I mean, it's it's kind of grown to where into where we are right now. Um, yeah. As you know, as a as a practitioner myself, I I call myself more of a practitioner of sympathetic magic. Um, and all of this has a lot to do with the relationship for me between the invisible world, the visible world, uh, the immaterial, the material, um, and the relationships between these things, the contacts um, that we have between them. And um, uh, yeah, this is sort of where we are. I. Interesting. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say, I met Sam along the way, and, um, you know, he was at the beginning of this Pansifers project, and, uh, you know, it's just something I really wanted to uh, be a part of and, 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 to, and to participate in and to contribute to, um, and, you know, here we are today. You bring me with, by what you just said, you bring me to, of course, my next question, because um, the way I discovered both you, well, that's not completely true, because I have discovered Sam a bit earlier by his book on Rosicrucianism and the Golden Dawn. Actually, that was the first time uh, when I remember now that Sam Robinson as a name came up in my in my area. But um, of course, the Pansovers website is the thing that made you know not only to me but also to too many i believe of our listeners here because it's a wonderful website it's a great website and well how how did that start maybe sam i think it was you in the first place right if i'm not wrong so yeah. how how did how did that happen why did you do that why did you give it that name because it's a very particular name as well um in the tradition so what made you create pansovers.com <laughs> uh, probably a bit too much free time uh, when it got started. You know, I was, I was working part time and and uh, looking around at Germany, and and I noticed, you know, here in Germany, there's a lot of stuff that I'd never seen before. You know, I was coming from a Golden Dawn background, the Maori side, and I saw a treasure trove, you know, um, laying on the ground, and small scattered groups who had this and that, and. I was like, wow, holy moly, you know, the stuff that's going on here and, and, and the materials people have and the teachings. So um, it was just too exciting to, you know, not get into. And for me, it started with, with this etheric link, which I got on the Golden Dawn side that actually was from um, the Stella Meditina thing. Mm -hmm. So Falcon got that from Steiner and nobody quite knew the history of it. It was meant to be just a Steiner Rosicrucian link. Where does it come from? Nobody knows. And then we come to Mylander, who might be the source. You know, that's a whole other story in itself. But um, definitely, you know, that journey to bring that etheric link back to Germany and to find out what its origins were and to find out about Pansophy, to find out about Kerning. Um, there was so much to tell, a huge story to tell, you know, and it was really exciting. So um, when I started to share that, people were kind of also excited and also enthusiastic and wanted to hear more. So, um We brought together friends, you know. We, we were always about um, helping other authors first. We've published so much for other authors and brought friends together. And it was just about relationships for a long, long time. We just really were enjoying ourselves. And the next thing you know, I've got, like, okay, a, a, a big blog happening and and uh, it's become a kind of voice for, for Rosicrucianism. 
Uh, definitely, that's become a very important voice, I'd say. You just mentioned a few names. Um, Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, of course, you mean then Alois Mailander, then Koenig. Um, we have to go a bit more in-depth into that a bit later because, of course, those are key names and also key names in your work. Um, but maybe just about pan sofers. Um, um, Ian, the, is the, was the pan-sophic movement as a as a name known to you when you when you con when you had your first contacts with Sam or was that something over there in the US you had not so much heard about? No, absolutely not. And you know, still to the present, it's something that I think we're we're, we're constantly trying to to kind of bring awareness to. Uh, for mm -hmm. me, you know, when I met Sam, we were you know I was very much interested in the Rosicrucian uh, tradition, and and I, what I mean by that is really the pre-20th century Rosicrucianism, or even, you know, 18th century. Um, I, you know, currently I study and, and do a lot of research into the Golden Rosenkreuzer um, order, for example. So my introduction to, to Pansophy was through Sam. Sam had written, you know, a, a number of articles on the subject, and without really knowing too much behind the fact that some of what he was talking about was what he was learning through either oral tradition there in Germany or um, through through some other unknown source. I just began with that uh, a, a whole path of, of investigation into Pansophy to try to really figure out, understand what that was about, because there were you know, important key figures such as uh, Heinrich Tranker, um, who had a Pansophic society. Um, you know, I discovered. Yeah. Uh, a, a, lo a load of his materials here in New York at the public library, um, things that he published publicly. And, um, you know, really through Tranker, I, I began to get, you know, catch a glimpse of this, this wider view of how Pansophy and Rosicrucianism might be related. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, an, it, it's an exploration that we keep uh, that's continuing to this day. Now we're getting into a few really interesting questions here because, as you just said, in um, Pansophy and Rosicrucianism, you don't necessarily link it together in the first in the first moment when you think about it. And um, of course, Pansophy has also got its links through the old OTO order to other currents, dilemmic currents that developed later on. And when we speak about Rudolf Steiner, there is the link to Memphis Misrim that never materialized, but it was at some point um, thought of, etc., etc. Carl Kellner comes into my mind when we speak about all that, etc. So um, maybe the two of you, maybe we start with Sam, we could have that's a tricky one sam but maybe we you could give us your personal definition of rosicrucianism ian said a little bit about it already but maybe you can say a bit more later on because rosicrucianism in all the currents that you see yourself describe on your on your website there is really from the very christian to the not christian rosicrucianism at all uh, and there is a big wide path where do you personally situate Rosicrucianism, Sam? That's a tough one because, I mean, on one side we're talking about what is pansophy and then we're talking about Rosicrucianism. Well, we can do one after the other, know, of course. And, so and let, the, let's do it one after the other. There's a yeah, sure. intersection, um, a dimension where they cross. 
Um, so for me, Rosicrucianism, broadly speaking, you know, I, I always like to refer to um, Christian theosophy, okay, mm-hmm. but this becomes hermetic in the Rosicrucian sense. You know, and in, in, in the blog I talked about this um, this breaking of the old will or the dying of the old self and how this is um, achieved through a, a resurrection of the new will. And often this is shown in the myths, you know, maybe that there's often um, a tomb legend and a sword is drawn out of it. Or there's mm. like um, Hiram Arbif, the Masonic hero, he, he, he's put into a grave, but an acacia sprig is planted above it. You know, there's always this sprig or this, this sword. Um, you know, even in, in the farmer itself, when um, to discover to discover the, the, the tomb of Christian Rosenkreuz, a, a nail is, is, is pulled out from the wall. Yes. Okay, so there's, there's always this um, broken sword before the the new will is given and this this um it shows up in alchemy it, it's the creation of a mercury you know this this thing that dies in the tomb in alchemy in the vessel becomes the mercury the mercury is the new will and in the christian mystical sense this is this is um the birth of the second will or new will you know mm-hmm. and and that's the beginning of the new spiritual life so for me rosicrucianism um is, is not just a standalone thing. It, it's quite universal. And we're telling this story through all these different myths, you know, because it has a really significant meaning and it's calling us to a certain type of initiation. Right, right. And how do you link it to, I mean, if, if to pan-sophers, how, I mean, to the pan-sophic movement, the, the early one? Right. So on the pan-sophic side, You've got, like Ian said, Tranker, you've got Poikert, you know, 50 years ago, he's writing all this stuff. And mm-hmm. his pansophy is nothing like um, um, Comenius's. Okay, but then it is. There's some, some common thread. That common thread, where is it? Um, it all starts, for me, to my mind, it all starts where um, in the Pharma, which is the first manifesto, mm-hmm. the seven Rosicrucian brothers, they make a promise. And they mm-hmm. say, we're all going to go out there and learn, but we're going to meet back here and we're going to share what we learned. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's that simple. That's the essence and the crossover from Rosicrucianism, occult Rosicrucianism, to um, a model of, of exchange and sharing, cooperation, Okay, which I think Ian can talk a lot more than me. Um, and when people start to cooperate... We're looking at a different side of Rosicrucianism because, you know, occultists, occultists, a lot of them don't get along at all, you know. Oh, Lordy, some of them really, really don't get along. Mm. And um, <laughs> because of pansophists, you know, we're in touch with so many orders. I, I am literally seeing so many groups trying to build up their inner order. And side by side, these different people are writing the same material at the same time all around the world. They're all writing their five, six, or six, five, and seven, four material. Mm-hmm. They're all developing this inner order curricula, even the Paul Foster case offshoots. You know, they're all, yeah. I mean, imagine what they could do if they cooperated. Yeah. yeah. You know, but they won't and they don't. And this model of cooperation, which I think Ian's going to crystallize and realize as the essence of Pansophy, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's the real expert there. So that that's where we get to see. Um, Rosicrucianism crossing is something more meaningful because a lot of people, occultism um, is missing a bridge into the real world. You know, mm-hmm. True. Um, 
some people are escaping reality. Some people don't want to have a real life. They, they don't want a job. They, they, you know, one of my favorite um, 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 mantras that I have often heard from, from, uh, no, I mean, I'm not picking on anyone here, but it's a statement, you know, I've come across kind of many times, um, not spoken out loud, but in essence, some magicians, you know, kind of represent that point where like, I'm a very powerful wizard, but I'm unemployed, you know, <laughs> and this kind of essence or signature exists. And there is a clear divide between occultism and, and the real life for many people. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, and there is no like mundane in Rosicrucianism, you know, it really crosses over to, to the way we live and, mm-hmm. and see the world. And that's what it's all about. So, you know, that, that's the essence of Pansophy, this model of cooperation. I know the City of the Sun um, story from um, Corsavita Stolas. He's talking about this utopia. There's diagrams and learnings all over the seven walls, and you're going to learn all about nature. And there's all this representation. But in the farmer, it's just literally boiled down to we're going to share. And that's yeah. what we're doing at Pansophy we're helping yeah. people for free yeah. and, and hopefully yeah. learn a lot and share. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's a very interesting point you're making. I'm not going to now di- break arcane discipline here, but of course, when you are on your path to the Rosencrucian degree in Freemasonry, the higher degrees, at some point in that path, you come exactly to that moment. It's not about the farmer, but it's the it's another moment where they say, okay, now we can only make the next step if we do that. The seven of us together otherwise we won't be able to do it and we're not walk the next step towards the rosencrucian degree so i think it's a it's a very deep and very important insight that you're giving there and that occultism should learn off in in general you're absolutely right absolutely right the egregore should be stronger than the ego absolutely yeah right ian you're a specialist he said on that so um, let us do share your your knowledge on that. Well, I mean, f- for me, I think you know, sort of riffing off of what Sam's saying um, about sharing and and this whole idea. I mean, for me, where Rosicrucianism really begins, obviously, we have the manifestos. One of the you know prime messages within the manifestos, at least in the the Fama, is. Um, this this idea of, of, of a sort of reformation, um, and you know Sam already mentioned theosophy. Um, I think uh, for the Rosicrucian movement and uh, you know later figures such as uh, Jakob Burma, um, you know these and even Paracelsus, uh, you know who influenced um, uh, many of their ideas, becomes really essential for for understanding. Um, the spiritual uh, sort of dimension of what they're talking about, but also how it connects to the, the the world of nature. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, the spirited world of nature, but also, which is important, and this is for me where, where Pansophy um, intersects with Rosicrucianism is, you know, the idea of a social type of uh, reformation. Um, an address so, so of, the material, of the, the human the world. Material side. Yeah. Yeah. The material side yes, of the yes. world, not just the spiritual, but the real. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, so, you know, on one hand, we could say Rosicrucianism is a little bit more theosophic, uh, perhaps in a sense, you know, if we're talking about 
um, this sort of raising of, of you know spirituality in a way. Um, I think pansophy intersects in as a way of saying, yeah. In addition to that, we're not talking only about you know this, the, the the spiritual world and ascending and going beyond um, you know transcending the material world, but as Alois Maylander says um, in uh, in a book that Sam recently published, for example, he makes uh, an extremely important point that that is also to happen in the here and now. You know that for, we're not leaving the world um, with our spiritual realization. We're we're embodied. We're embodying it, and we're staying in the here and now. Um, so. You know, there, there are a lot. We could speak about a lot of the historic background to that. Um, you know, there's such things such as humanism that enters into from the Renaissance. But I think moving forward from the manifestos through people like Comenius um, and, you know, even into the Golden Rosenkreuzer, uh, there really is this um, this idea, this this sense um which you could even see in the works of Agrippa, this, this connection between the terrestrial, the celestial, and the uh, super-celestial uh, within a, a, a model that, that we're working within. And each component you know, works together within this, this whole. Um, we don't necessarily leave anything out or reject you know, one side. So things such as magic being opposed to mysticism start to fall away as being um, relevant, you know, descriptors because it all sort of works into a single whole within that system. That, that's a very hermeticist point of view what, that you're making here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things Sam and I have frequently um, talked about, or maybe I picked it up from Sam directly, was this idea that, you know, pansophy is the hermetic twin of, of theosophy. That, you know, uh, one okay. is sort of a little bit a little focused on the, the wisdom of the divine, and the others is wisdom of, well, of the all, which that leaves us with... What's left over at that point, we have the material world and we have the human world. So, yes. And, and if in the, in, the, in the spiritual world we, we discover that the all is one that has a consequence on the material world, because then the, the one and the all have the same relationship if we take the hermetic law by its, by its work, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Maybe, I think uh, Sam has to say something there, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think part of the challenge of pansophy is that partly um, it's not accepted or in, in some ways some people don't want to know about it because it means once, once you're practicing certain magical paths, um, taking on pansophy opens up a whole can of worms. Now, now you're dealing with morals and magic. Now you're dealing with um, ideas where you have to question you know, the intentions of a lot of stuff. Now you're dealing with society. You know, how, how does, what is the, you know, the question of where does magic fit in society? You know, are we a bunch of, um, you know, um, loonies, you know, dressing up in weird robes and shining weird stuff in the corner and we don't fit in the real world? Or that's, is this something that actually can 
bring about a reintegration for us in a meaningful way, you know, that helps not only myself, but, you know, my family, my community. So um, the, the, the raw side of that is, is, is that when you start to ask those questions, it, it exposes a lot of things or raises, you know, questions people don't want to answer. And, and um, it introduces sort of some challenges to where people stand in their own spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's your personal answer to that question? How does your work influence, I'm, I'm phrasing that difficultly, uh, how does your personal work influence your environment? Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's a tough one. Uh, I, only, I only have tough ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can tell you, I mean, Ian's, Ian's, I'm going to blow the whistle a little, Ian's holding back. He's working on some really great stuff having to do with cooperation. And I, I think it's going to be revolutional. I think it's going to be very important for the occult communities. And um, I'm excited about when he delivers that. Okay, because if you have cooperation, you know, um, that's not just something that's good for an occult fraternity. That's good for something all round for, for your local community um, in, in your office. If, if you work in, an, I don't know, um, any kind of logistics team, whatever, you know, um, the ideas of cooperation are the essence of pansophy. And if people are fighting and misbehaving, they're not cooperating, they're failing. You know, of course, there's a struggle um, sometimes. That's natural. And, and, and um, But there's skills to learn in the nature of cooperation, in the way you listen to people, you know, in the way you're able to find out what they really want in, in, in your dynamic and how you behave. So um, our, our enlightenment should improve that cooperation. That's mm-hmm. what I believe. That's where the crossover is. And if, and if I'm not able to, you know, increasingly get along with more people or understand others, I must be doing something wrong. So for me, it definitely has a knock-on effect that um, uh, I see it in my life. You know, my, my career is always um, moving along nicely and, and I'm thinking about these things all the time and I'm uh, trying to help people around me uh, in the real world. And, and sometimes you can plant a few of these seeds and others as well. Definitely. Um, but this is certainly not a coincidence that I believe all Western esoteric schools or cult schools start with the Gnosis Auton, recognize yourself, learn about yourself first, before you can do the second step, which is then go towards the other and, and, and cooperate, as you, as you just said, right? You have to do that first step first, right? Well, my lander on this one, who we're going to talk about later, mm-hmm. he um, is saying that your your real life is going to transfigure you and prepare you for your rebirth. He flips it around a bit. The, the exercises, the meditations you do will trigger something in your body and your real life. And there's a great relationship between the two, which I can really go into later in a detailed mm-hmm. way. But mm-hmm. ultimately, um, it's it's this soul learning and this looking within um, Nancy from, from our Rosicrucian group, she says it very well. She, she's from the confraternity of the Rosy Cross. She says, you know, a lot of these people are just staring at their own belly buttons. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. and there's a kind of selfish seeking. So there has to be this dynamic where um, your life is literally a mirror of it. You know, um, I, I had recently... Um, um, a group I'm kind of helping and, and they've got an occult lodge started. They're doing Memphis Miserium. And, and um, 
one of them kind of complained is, oh, you know, I, I, these people, they're driving me mad and we're not getting along and this one wants this and they want to do it that way and they have to learn off by heart and we're spending all this money and I've had enough of this. I, I really can't get along with this group. They're driving me nuts. And I said, man, now you're doing the work. That's where you need to be. Figure it out. Get along. That's exactly what you need to do. Right. You know? Right. Very, 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 yeah, very interesting. Very, very interesting. I think. Um, Ian, uh, are you ready to talk a bit more about that? What, what Sam just mentioned that you're preparing or is it too early or? No, it's fine. I mean, we are still taught. We are still working through this, but, um, you know, we, it, it all fits into, you know, how this, how this, uh, you know, our understanding of pan exists and where it's going. I mean, as you said, know thyself. I, I think it's in, it's a really interesting point to stop, you know, to start and consider like, you know, what we're talking about, you know, in the last, I would say maybe 150, 200 years, um, you know, you know, the, the sort of modern idea of psychology has always been this this isolated, I sort of feel like individual, like working, especially in the Western world, you know, working, you know, yeah. ad addressing other circles, social, social circles. Um, nature is considered to be something out there and not in here. Um, and that's something I think we really want to, like, see flipped around in a way, you know, rather than beginning with that, you know, let's begin with the idea that, you know, we are all connected within within this cosmos, you know, within this cosmology. Um, that's certainly the way that it, that people thought in the classic, in the, in the ancient world. Um, science, mm -hmm. religion, philosophy, they, they were all intertwined. There was no separation between these fields. Um, one discipline, uh, you know, informed another and, and each one had an analog uh, in relationship to the other. Um, that's something that really seems missing, you know, in the spiritual life today, you know, this idea that we start with the isolated self and then, you know, we work outward. I think it, it, it definitely makes sense uh, with with maybe the modern mindset, you know, the modern state, uh, sense of psychology. But what we're looking at um, within our pansophic model is really a way for how the interior and the exterior communicate with each other, you know, so there's this constant sort of outflux and influx between, um, you know, what rises within the individual's awareness and experience on a spiritual or esoteric level, how it influences, um, you know, in an immediate environment and how that feedback enters back into it. So when Sam talks about, you know, having a kind of moral Uh, paradigm connected to this, um, you know, can there be a, a set of ethics connected to occultism? I certainly think so. I mean, if we if we if we approach, you know, the cosmos as this, you know, a, a spiritual world where everything that we see, breathe, you know, or touch is is imbued with spirit, you know, as Paracelsus thought or as Aristotle said. Um, then really everything that we do, even if we can't see its effect, you know, in, in a material sense, we have an impact on, on everything that happens around us. And we're affected that sure. way as well. Um, the way that they described that in the past was that, you know, every soul shared in the same sort of world soul, you know, that sort of, you know, overarching soul that connects every other soul in the cosmos. 
um, and each can communicate with each other because they each hold a part of, of you know, the, the keys or symbols um, that, that, that relate to the qualities of the other. So from that point of view, everything is already connected. And it's really, for us, a process of, of coming to that realization and next deciding how we're going to live, you know, within, within this world. Um, as whether, you know, we're mystics or magicians or philosophers, artists, bankers, bakers, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, that's really, I think what we'd like to see is, is kind of, you know, almost normalization, I think of, of occultism or esotericism in, in our lives. Um, and so the cooperative model becomes really important for addressing things such as the individual between, you know, the relationship between the individual and the community, the community and the city, the city and its surrounding nature. So you have these rings. I mean, it's very much like Campanella's City of the Sun, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have these rings of society. We don't necessarily need to have uh, a utopian model because, you know, if we just consider the ecosystems that surround, you know, each each of our lives, you know, in our neighborhoods, et cetera, that those rings are already there. Um, so it's really just a matter, I think, of taking our experience, you know, with the spiritual world and, you know, its esoteric ideas and, like I said, just living with it, you know, making it part of life. Mm-hmm. And we take a little break here and... Um... Sam will have something to say about what Ian just had said now, and that will come immediately after the musical break. But I had to break somewhere. It was not easy to find the break moment here in this interview because we were so into it, and it was lovely, really lovely to talk to those two guys. Light, right, uh, light, yes, light, of course, right. Um, Let's listen to some music now. And um, the next piece that we are going to hear together is, uh, again, of course, it wants to make sense uh, of the fact that we are talking about Rosicrucianism here today. And uh, the piece that we are going to hear now has um, been recorded by a group called Anantakara. I am unable to translate that to you to be honest and also to tell you much more about that group the piece itself is called unlock an immortal an immortal seal unlock an immortal seal and maybe just to give you a little explanation sometimes we have to be dismantled in our being before accessing some relief and brightness it's a voyage into recovery and um, well the anatakara is a project from louvain la neuve in belgium um, that was established in 2010. That's all I can tell you. They do live performances there. And, um, well, I just ask you to enjoy that. It's a bit meditative. It takes nine minutes into another sound world. So you enjoy. And after that, we will come back right away for our for our second part of the interview. And um, uh, we have a lot of more interesting things to hear from our friends, from the Pansofers, from that wonderful, uh, from the wonderful website, the uh, 
pensofers.com. Really go there. It's it's so important to do that. And um, we will end. Well, we will almost end. I come back and say goodbye to you, but there will be no outro as such this week because I told you everything in the beginning already. So we will have a third piece of music by uh, an artist called Old Dog. Well, he calls himself like that. He isn't a young man, Ross. He's called Ross Lorraine, a composer of great versatility. And um, he, his, the piece he interprets and sings for us is called Nine Doors. I really like that voice, that deep voice, almost Johnny Cash-like voice he has there. Right, so... Once again, first it's Anantakara with Unlock an Immortal Seal. Then it'll be the Pansofers. And to round it all up, it will be Ross Lorraine, with, who calls himself Old Dog, with Nine Doors. And now, enjoy. <laughs>
I think there to add something about these sure. rings, you know, Campanella and, and you've got Savita Solis, you've got um, Christian Apollos um, from, from uh, Johann Valentin Andrea. Th- these utopias like New Atlantis, they were this Rosicrucian dream. Wouldn't it be great if we all got along and had the same God and, and, and the Pope was the king and they were all very enlightened and everyone was very holy, 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 holy. You know, the, the, these models... Um, I see them as kind of talismanic. They're a dream. And Arthur's first Louise, he says these texts are initiatory. You, you go into someone's imagination if you enter it with passion and vision. Hmm. At the same time, through through Pansophy as it's evolving, because it is evolving, the, the Pansophy is po- of Poikett from 50 years ago is not that of Comenius. You know, it's a project that's ongoing in Germany. With us, I think we outgrow the, the need to even talk about a utopia because one man's utopia is another man's hell that's for sure <laughs> so you know what why would we even bother to try to describe the perfect society we'll end up you know being communist for god's sake but the the uh ultimately though what we learn um if there's one thing that, that we can work on is cooperation and in that regard 
a utopia certainly would have cooperation. Um, whatever model that may represent, you know, we, we, we're kind of outgrowing the, 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 the fantasy of, of those utopias. And I'd say Pansophy's reaching a mature, riper age through mm -hmm. our work. Mm -hmm. Does cooperation go through compassion or not? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there is a connection between um, the internal alchemies, especially of Myrink's system, to compassion and mindful thinking, um, um, and and uh, compassionate the, the compassionate mind, and also the the, the thoughtful will drive. You know, we have this will mm. drive, and how to be present in it. You know, there's certain skills um, that cross over from from meditation into listening to others for sure yeah yeah you know? yeah 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 mindful thinking is probably the better word than compassion in that context right yeah 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 mm -hmm. uh, I, I was just gonna say if i could add you know the the word compassion you know i think also brings back the idea of you know of, of sympathy again you know and the model we're working with we have this this idea of sympathy and empathy as being these two, you know, different sort of forces. Sympathy is is kind of like, you know, the the, the immediate, you know, connecting of, of one um, to another. Well, as empathy is 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 going out, you know, going outward and trying to to like sort of understand the other. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I, I think compassion is 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 definitely the right the right idea there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Okay, thank you. Well, I think we we need to go a bit into those names that you dropped at the beginning, Sam um, um, Steiner, Mylander, etc. Um, let's let's first talk maybe about the book that uh, Ian was mentioning that you have published very recently. Unfortunately, as I told you before we started, I ordered it, but it's still somewhere in between the printers and my home so it's not yet here but um tell us a bit about uh, i think most of the people who listen here to this odd podcast will not have it in their hands yet um so tell us about that book about mylander about the person we have written quite a bit about him on the website but still i think it needs some explanation who he was and how you discovered him in the first place <laughs> oh, you're digging into some personal things. I will share some things, I'll tell you. Uh, Mylander and Koenig, these two names, right now quite unknown. A few people have started to look. I'm very certain that in 100 years from now, these two names will be um, part of the staple practice of the Western internal alchemies, that we're going to um, resurrect Western spiritual alchemy in, in a very tangible way, because for a lot of people it gets vague. We're not quite sure in some groups, you know, you get to the inner orders, it kind of fizzles out, you know, some Martinist groups or, or the Arcana, Arcanorums, they have all these promises. They talk about the way of the heart. Um, and to some degree, you can work on those things, but where are the practices in the West, you know? And um, uh, a lot of people go to Eastern stuff in the Finnish because that's, that's where it's all at. Well, mm -hmm. we have a, a um, system that's, just as worthy and just just as practical and just as realistic with a with a tradition behind it, with our gurus. That's Alois Mylander, um, who represent you know um, 
what yeah he, he he essentially stands for a western so-called enlightened master you know people sometimes ask where are all the enlightened people in the western path you know um and especially today this is hard to find but he he's a kind of moment in in history he was born in 1847 had an awakening in 1877 and in his lifetime he became a a secret rosicrucian guide behind the theosophical society and they all kept him secret it's amazing because nobody's heard of him until now they all kept him yeah. secret they stayed true yeah. to his oath when i brought him out everyone was like what the who what now uh, the first person I told about this was Nick Farrell back in 2009. I sort of said, you know, because we, we were both from the Stella Matatina side. Yeah, sure. Yeah. He's kind of a great skeptic. And I said, you know, Nick, I, I've kind of found like a secret chief third order. And I know Nick well enough to know he would have rolled his eyes and thought I was being a bit mad. But um, <laughs> if he wouldn't, it would be something wrong anyway. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because how many times, if you look behind these groups, so many of them claim to have secret resolution guides or masters or unknown chiefs right so many of them claims it now i'm i'm quite sure thanks to what i've discovered in this experience um that people can't keep their mouths shut they they're not very good at keeping secrets i mean they did very well with mylander but sooner or later you'll go through the cracks and you're going to start finding things if there's something really there you'll find it hmm. um for me personally getting the etheric link from from the stella Matatina side Nobody knew at the time about Mylander or, or Koning and these names. We just knew it was it was called an etheric link to Christian Rosenkreuz, you know. And whether or not you believe in Christian Rosenkreuz as a real person, as a myth, of this founder of the Rosicrucian Order, that's who he's supposed to be, um, Steiner gives this communication to Falcon, a, a leader of the Stella Maritina of the Golden Dawn. And in 1912, Falcon brings this back to New Zealand and Steiner basically is telling people that this link is a connection to Christian Rosenkreuz. But looking in Steiner's doctrine, he, he's actually saying Christian Rosenkreuz is, is John returned, John the evangelist, come again. Mm-hmm. And he also says this Christian Rosenkreuz is alive again. But looking at factual history, there's only one Rosicrucian master at the time who was known as John the evangelist return, and that's Mylander. So we identify... Mylander is, is Steiner's possibly secret chief. I'm not going to say that Steiner learned from him. Uh, at this point, I would say that he definitely told people he did or, or connected his tradition to that. Maybe it was a theoric that the guide and the help he got. But, um, yeah, we, we are looking at a real, like I said, a, 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 the opening to the public. Of, maybe for the first time. I don't know if it's the first time, but mm. the opening to the public, the unveiling of a hidden resolution guide. When approximately in the life of Steiner would that happen? Um, because they are about the same age. I believe Steiner is maybe ten years younger than Malander, if I say it, say it from my from from my mind now. But it must be about that. But they are about the same generation, right? You could say. When when did that connection happen? Right. So Steiner does something quite interesting in, in about 1924 or 26. It was in the 20s. He, he kind of tells the story where he claims he met the M, which is his teacher, Rosicrucian, the M. The date that um, corresponds to that meeting would be 1879. Okay. Now, did he really meet Mylander then, or is he backdating his story? This is another question, mm. okay, because it's quite convenient because it would imply he met Mylander before all the other members of the Theosophical Society. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, um, but he calls him the M 
And he says that John the Evangelist is around. Mylander is called John the Evangelist. He's also called the M. So um, there's something there that raises a lot of questions for anthroposophists. I'm not an anthroposophist, but certainly we're, we're opening that story bit by bit. And I think it's quite exciting for many people. Absolutely. I, I'm not myself, but I have a, well, I, a lot of my beginnings in the field of the esoteric were influenced by the early writings of Steiner. So I see where you're going and then. That, that's very interesting. And and what about um, uh, Kerning? I think he he's almost 100 years earlier, right? He's um, teaching his stuff 1830s, 40s. Mylander mm -hmm. has a transmission in his heritage that goes back to the 1790s for sure. We can clearly identify that. Kerning, okay. we aren't sure where he gets things from, but the relationship is Kerning gives a Western spiritual alchemy, two, two versions of it, a public version a Masonic one, Mylander as the new kind of Rosicrucian herald or guide, he has an awakening and he's teaching the Kerning method and he revises it. He creates a Rosicrucian variation. So I've classified four main Kerning variations, okay, or traditions. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why I classify that is, is because they're very distinctly different. They belong to different groups and there's far too much material to sort out. So those, those classifications allow us to have a proper dialogue and look at all that material. Okay, so just for, just for people who aren't familiar, I've mentioned it once in the group, but Kerning 1.0 is his original inner alchemy system. Then he has a public system, which is a bit softer and easier to work with. Mm -hmm. Kerning 2.0 is the Rosicrucian one. Mylander comes along and spiritualizes it in a Rosicrucian way, he has the baptism of the blood. And he starts to draw these forces into the body through the blood. For him, the soul is the will over the blood, the blood the will over the body. He initiates a new transfiguration of the body. But Kerning's mm. very body-based. It just goes a bit further with Mylander. Right. right. And then Kerning 3.0, the theosophists get hold of it. They add chakras, spiritual centers, um, hatha yoga, breathing exercises. They're having a field trip. They're loving it. You know, yeah, they, okay. they really come out with their own version and all that stuff's very cool. Mm -hmm. And Kony 4.0, one of my landed students was a member of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And he had his own group and they introduced the raising of the sex force through the body to awaken the word. Oh, really? So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and that's the version that goes into the OTO. I was going to say that was the, about the early OTO, right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and that actually happens um, 10 years before the founding of the OTO, the creation exactly. of that version. And, and am I right that um, that happened partly in Vienna with Eckstein? Um, he's, he's more aligned to what I call Kerning 3.0, the theosophical version. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So um, um, that they have distinct differences. Like the 4.0 version definitely... Kerning seeks to awaken the world and the body, just like Mylander. Um, but just this, this final version incorporates the raising of the sex force to awaken at the head and the larynx to call out the word as well. And, and this is um, um, maybe something people are not quite familiar with because people talk about inner knowing or gnosis. But there's aspects of, of Kerning's inner word that are quite different because you're actually receiving and, and for some of them, you're receiving um, a tangible voice that some of them even end up recording, you know, depending on which version. Not all of them go for that. For some of them, mm -hmm. they're just doing this kind of other enlightenment. But th that's this brief breakdown. 
um, right. that I'm putting into the second book, which is I'm working on now. But this first one about Myland, I had to really lay down the foundation because if you're going to go claiming you've got a secret chief, you, you better prove it, you know. Yeah, and sure. and and uh, that's not for us to claim any special lineage or anything silly. This is just to lay down the basis to go on to the next step, um, to lay a historical basis for everyone to be able to study this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, um, Mylan, you are now giving access to that through your book that you just published, but the kerning material before you were working on that, it, uh, it wasn't really accessible, was it? Uh, or it, was it accessible, this kerning material to the public, to the general public so far? Kerning's books. I mean, he's got books, but I wouldn't call them practical. Carl Kellner mm. basically had a declaration saying it's not practical, but in our order, him and Roy's are clear. They're going to deliver the practical secrets. You see? Right. right. So I, I, I have to say that now because, uh, Sam, before we started, you asked me about why I did this podcast. And I said, well, initially, because my part of the world was kind of instrumental at, at some point in not me, but my, cre my part of the world in creating some currents and it's interesting so Carl Kellner you just mentioned he was initiated in, in the Masonic Lodge I am part of the oldest lodge here in Vienna um, oh, wow. he made it only to second degree then he dropped out but still he was in the same lodge and Eckstein of course who was an important link between Steiner um, Royce um, I believe also partly um, 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 Kerning etc um He was a very important Viennese figure most of Viennese have forgotten about nowadays. Right. Well, Karl Kellner and Eckstein are both Mylander students. Oh, and, right. And, yeah, and Karl Kellner had a kerning circle. Um, they would meet at this cafe and dialogue. That's where Steiner started showing up and he started mm -hmm. to pick up some of the stuff. Exactly. You know, um, so for sure, um, the, the impact, the implications of this, and because you asked, is it accessible or not? What I've found is that a lot of occult and Rosicrucian fraternities have this stuff and they don't realize what it is. Just like us, I mean, Falcon had these process documents in his Stella Meditina. So you got the etheric link, that's the transmission from Steiner, this link to John, the Evangelist, Christian Rosicrucian. Next to that, you had some kind of exercises or documents. Nobody knew that that was Koenig stuff. No mm -hmm. clue. At, and, and, and actually, I, I didn't have the, the, the process documents, I only had the etheric link. It was here in Germany, that I discovered the Koenig stuff because someone um, asked me to help find the process documents. And that's when I found things on the German side that had nothing to do with Falcon. I just found it as destiny or life would have it. And that's yeah. when I sort of mentioned to, 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 um, uh, Tony Fuller, who, who we show in our blog, mm. um, what I found. And that's when he gave me the, the Falcon one and that stuff matched up to what I'd found as well. It was unbelievable. Right you know right. so right. to come from new zealand to germany and and found the missing pieces well new zealand seems to play a very heavy role in that whole story anyway because i mean i don't have to talk about this here but um, go back to previous previous uh, episodes on my show and of course uh, people who know a bit about it it's amazing how new zealand all the time plays roles in discovering new things there yeah. or or sheltering other things that are gone elsewhere. Ian, um, I have a question for you. You are an artist, right? And I believe Mr. Kerning or Kneiding or Krebs or whatever you call him, because he, that there are several names he used. He was a colleague of mine. He was an opera 
an opera singer and an opera uh, director at back at the time. So um, we are also artists. And how does the artistic life and the artistic work, of course, I mean, um, link to your uh, occult esoteric Rosicrucian work? Um, um, why, how do you how would you describe that? <clears throat> Uh, the connection with kerning is is uh, is pretty interesting. I'll, I'll speak a little bit about um, my my relationship with this material, and I'll, I'll try to make a link to, to my own work. But um, he he seemingly comes out of nowhere um, in a way. You know, I'm you know currently I'm you know we've been working on some uh, books of, of kernings and doing translations. Um, some of those which are going to be coming out later this year. Um, you know, for example, right now I'm working on Letters of the Royal Art. Um, and one of the things that's uh, really amazing about Kerning is that, you know, he seems to, to, to kind of come out of nowhere. Um, you know, we, he has his influences and, and you can identify maybe some books that he's reading. Uh, you know, and there are things like Kabbalah and, uh, you know, the teachings of Abulafia or, or earlier, but you really get the sense that he's synthesizing his teachings really through the, the intricate and in-depth experience of, of his art, which is music. So um, for me, that's a really um, important connection to, to my own artwork. So, you know, Kearney's, Kearney's teaching is that, you know, if you're going to learn something and, you know, the goal of, of his work through his letter mysticism is, is really to, to, you know, realize this, this inner word, which is, you know, almost like, you know, this is the lost word of Freemasonry. And it's mm-hmm. like this, div- the divine prophetic word that, that happens internally. Um, his, his whole teaching is that you're going to learn it on and understand what it is after you do the work and after you learn the steps that go into it. Uh, so for me, it's it is really interesting that I started off with art and then ended up I still practice, but I ended up going to esotericism later. And I think what it was that brought me there was that the more I spent time with my work and I, the more I tried to understand and realize where inspiration was coming from, where my ideas were coming from. You know, I would joke with my friends and, you know, I would say things like, Oh, you know, that was, you know, they'd ask where I came up with the idea for something. And I would say, oh, you know, some voice told me to do it. It it sounds funny, you know, when you think of it that way. But as an artist, and when you are engaged in that process, and I know this happens to a lot of other people I know who are artists, they just don't think about it, maybe, is that that genius, I guess we could say in the classical sense. Yeah, the the diamond in the old Greek sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah is not just, you know, it's not just individual. It's not just in your head necessarily, or, you know, based on your character, it's, it's coming in from somewhere else. And maybe it's corresponding to the qualities that you have, you know, in your own, you know, your own psychology, you know, the, the makeup of your soul and maybe the Zodiac forces, you know, that were there at the time of your birth or something like that. Um, and so the more I, I, I tried to discover what that was and learn about that process, that's when I, you know, I, I always knew about things like, 
the Order of the Golden Dawn, you know, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And I'd heard about Rosicrucianism and things like that. But once I started to take a second look at it, it was kind of like, oh, well, there's a connection right there. I mean, here are groups, teachings, and ideas that, um, you know, that they're studying, you know, practicing this stuff, more importantly, not just studying it. Um, that, that maybe here is, is, is an entire discipline that might help me understand what this is that I'm experiencing through art. Um, I can imagine maybe, you know, for, for Kerning, having Freemasonry started off as, as a vehicle for him, you know, to, to really frame his ideas and his teachings mm-hmm. because he uses, you know, the, uh, the, he uses the, the craft lodge degrees and all of its symbolism to, to construct his system, at least in the letters of the royal art. Um, and this is the, the, you know, the Masonic system. So, and this includes things such as the vowel sounds. These are in the pillars um, uh, and, the, the, and the consonants. Um, that's, you know, one is in the Yakin pillar and the, mm-hmm. the consonant is in, in the Bokim uh, mm-hmm. pillar and so on and so forth, you know, as, as the candidate rises, um, you know, from apprentice to um, uh, onto the, the, the Master Mason degree, um, they're learning various components. He's saying that the teachings are embedded within the system itself. So my point being that, you know, I, I think we have the creative process you know, we have our experience with, with uh, you know, inspiration. We have experience with, you know, uh, being affected by these invisible forces, you know, that come from, from somewhere else that are really effective. But, but then again, we need systems. Um, and so that, that's, that's what led me to mm-hmm. uh, occult, occult teachings and groups yeah, and yeah. things of that yeah. nature. Well, I, I might share that here. I haven't done that online before, but um, uh, I, I completely understand what you mean because in my personal, more performing arts uh, life, I realized only probably 20 years later that many things I had done when I was 15 to 20, 25 um, were out of that inspiration that was already there, but I had not yet known, just like you said it, what the background, what the Golden Dawn was or what masonry was, whatever. But in in looking back, I can exactly see why I did that, because I was on that path already, but without knowing what the path was, actually. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, um, Sam, you were worried that, well, one hour, how are you going to fill that? Well, uh, we are well beyond the hour, and I'm afraid we have to come to a conclusion at some point. We have to continue that conversation at some other point, I believe. But before I let you two go, um, I have a question for both of you. Um, whoever wants to start, starts. Um, there is a big danger, and I know that both of you are not um, uh, are not in danger of that because you are practitioners, etc. There is a big danger that with all the theory that there is now around that we can get hold of and the books and and information, etc., internet, etc., etc., um, the occult work, the real personal work that every one of us has to do in order to improve, um, gets covered by all that mass of information. Um, how? Can we avoid that? What would be 
a counsel or uh, some advice you would give to people who maybe are not yet that experienced as you two are um, to avoid that trap of going too much into theory uh, and not in, enough into practice, but still be aware of the theory because you need it to be practitioner. Sam, you want to start? Sure. Um, I, I, I see this question a bit because our Pantsifer site has a lot of history. Um, I'm not academic, but we have academics involved. So a lot of it's quite heady stuff. Um, I, I think as a community, it's going to evolve because once we've got the MyLander book out, which we've done, then comes the, the, the Kerning um, book on all the orders. I'm going to put that out. Ian's going to publish some translations. After that comes... I believe in an era of practice. Now, how do we work with it? You know, and I, I think I can, for me personally, put, put the history writing behind me. I, I was never meant to be a historian, really. So um, ultimately, and this is the beauty of the Koenig slash um, my my of staff. There is a daily need to sink into the body. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, the more you do it, obviously, the better. You know, in my own personal life. Um, the results and, and, and things going on with my body. I mean, um, I, I don't get hungry anymore. You know, I, I, I used to eat a lot and especially in the pandemic, you know, you want to have a burger because it's just the pandemic. So why the hell not? And, and, uh, the more I practice, you know, um, it, it's like, I don't really remember to eat because, you know, you, you, you feel so, um, grounded already, mm-hmm. you know, and you've mm-hmm. got this other sustenance. I think mm-hmm. so. Um, sinking into the body every single day, deeply, and, and just keeping silent and listening to it. You know, going into the kinks. Life is quite stressful. You, you've got your work, you've got your projects, you've got your targets from your boss, whatever it may be. Um, this can cause tensions and knots and things. You really have to go into the body and melt them and and and, and put consciousness in there and observe these points and let them untangle. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, without doubt, that, that that is the grounding practice. You know, there's, there's a whole series of things I could talk about with kerning practice because uh, the variations are so interesting. Myland is bringing a, a kind of faith into the body and, and the Holy Spirit in the body. All the stuff on top of that is great, but that's the foundation, I would say, to, you know, making sure that you're not getting too caught up in the right. head stuff. Right, Absolutely. Ian, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I would consider myself kind of like a somewhat of a classical, um, you know, I take kind of a classical approach, I guess you could say with that question. I mean, on one hand, I think, you know, uh, ideas related to, to theory are important. Um, I think that um, having a balance between one's intellectual side uh, is, is important, but that balance, of course, uh, needing and involving um, daily work. So, but I, I understand, you know, you know, your question because, you know, today with just just being bombarded with just with information constantly, uh, often it seems there's. Uh, you know, an impulse to to always look for the next thing in books or, you know, something's coming out or someone's talking about this and we need to jump on it. And, um, you know, maybe all this information is going to help us in some way. Uh, and I'm not saying it won't or, or none of that is important. I think all of it is important. But I really think, you know, 
tacking on to what Sam is saying about how to do it um, and what to get into is, is I think really to, to, to make for yourself a, a time, you know, and to, to, to create a schedule. I mean, for me, this is what works. You know, earlier I was saying, you know, having the experience is one thing, but I need a system. For me, having having a, a daily rhythm and and having a schedule, you know, I, I I do the I do the work whether I'm feeling like it or not. Mm. Um, and yeah, sometimes I might skip it a few days if 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 I can't if I can't get to it. Um, during the pandemic was difficult because, you know, my my um, my practice space I wasn't able to get to it because I was at home with family and people everywhere. It was very hard to have a quiet moment to do, sure. to do my, my own work. But still, you know, I, I tried, you know, I wake up earlier than everyone else just, just to get in it, even if it's just 30 minutes of, of, um, of, of, of whatever work it is that you're engaged with. Uh, I, think, I think that's important because in the end, it's, it's sort of a cumulative in a way, I think, you know. Uh, if you do something like keep a journal for yourself, uh, you know, I, I just did this recently. I, I looked back over the journal I, I, over the last, you know, decade of, of my work, and you could see huge changes and differences. They don't seem like they're, they're, they're happening day by day because maybe it feels like a routine, but over longer periods mm -hmm. of time, you, you start to see <clears throat> where that development is. And that, that's an important part, I think, of you know, knowing, knowing yourself, if we're going to use that. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So, mm -hmm. well, great. Well, thank you for that insight. And I think important, um, wasn't so much advice, but, uh, knowledge by experience. And that's, I think exactly what, what, what we are here for. Thank you so much to two of you. Um, it was great to have you on this show and I hope we can repeat that one day because there's so much left to be said at the latest when the Kearney book will be out. <laughs> and uh, well, thanks to both of you. Any final word from either or both? Um, no, I mean, um, if people want to know the title of, of the book I've just put out, it's Allies, My Land, Rosicrucian Remembered. That's now and it Amazon. will be, of course, in the show notes with a link there so people can find. Oh, great, thank you. Um, other than that, you know, we have pansifers.com. Um, and, and, and like we always say, you know, if you have a Rosicrucian book, if you have Rosicrucian projects or, or anything interesting, we're happy to interview you and um, um, help you publish your, your um, work on our blog too. It's, it's a community. So we're open to that as well. That's, that's great. Thank you, Ian. That's perfect. I mean, just what Sam says, you know, uh, if you want to find out what we're doing, um, updates on padsuffers.com, if you happen to be on Facebook, uh, we also, you know, we run a Facebook group where, you know, we, we have con constant continuous dialogue over these uh, issues and concerns. So um, you could stay updated that way as well. Yeah, and you're doing a great job. I must add that to it. Well, thank you so much and we'll uh, have a good rest of the day. And uh, thank you for your time and, well, keep going. It's great what you're doing. Thank you. Thank, thank you so you much. Too.
Nine Doors by Ross Lorraine, also known as Old Dog. Right, um, well, thank you so much, Samuel Robinson and Ian Gladwin, for being with us here today on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. It was a wonderful talk, and um, uh, once again, I invite all of you to go on the Pansovers website and to go through all the material there. Uh, it's highly interesting. And... Um, Thanks to all of you, of course, who have been with us here today, listening to this show. We have now 120 shows available on the web. Um, so that's quite something, five years of work. And um, well, as I said, come back later this week, Wednesday with a new episode with Lionel Snell, co-hosted by Carl Abrahamson with me. And then I meet Ronnie Pontiac on Friday, the 22nd. Next Sunday, it'll be Terje Get Simonson, and we'll talk a bit about the paranormal worlds, something new for the podcast here. And um, talking about you, well, there is one thing. If you have really maintained listening till the end, I'll tell you now, there is another surprise I will announce to you probably on Monday, tomorrow, or maybe Tuesday. But keep an eye on Facebook and Twitter. It'll be worth it. Okay. Good. So have a nice, uh, no, I don't tell you have a nice week, have a nice few couple of days. Have a good Easter. And um, we'll hear each other again in three days on Wednesday when we will meet Lionel Snell. But for now, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.